This is Jason Sizemore of Apex Publications, and you're listening to the Cromcast. Crom. Ready in Nebraska? Yeah. We are ready in Kentucky. In 5432. Welcome back, everybody, to the Savage Cromcast, Season 3, Episode 7 The Hills of the Dead. I'm Josh. I'm Luke. And I'm John. And together we form a gigantic mecca known as the Cromcast. Guys, welcome back. Hello, hello. It's a beautiful day out here in Nebraska. What's it like over in Kentucky? It's a beautiful day in Kentucky. Yes. We have finally thawed out. The The sun is out. The birds the are chirping. Uh, it's Snow's melted. Yeah, like a foot worth of snow has finally gone away. It's kind of crazy to think that just like five or seven days ago that all of that snow was still around. But, man, it warmed up quick. It's nice. And it did Pretty warm up. talk about vampires, right? <laughs> yeah, thankfully it's not <laughs> dark and cold on, on this day. On this vampire vulture voodoo day we find ourselves in. Since last time we neglected to do this, we should probably do it right up front. Yeah, so we don't forget. Yeah, so we don't forget. Oh. John, what you drinking? I am uh, sipping on some Wild Turkey 101. Very nice. Thank you. I enjoy it. Is that neat? It is neat. I pretty much only drink it neat. Wow, you're a man. Kara has learned how to make an old-fashioned, though. Really? My wife. Yeah, she's she's been making them for herself lately. They're cool. pretty good. What's where did she get her recipe? I Pinterest probably. Pinterest probably. Okay. <laughs> I, I assumed that she actually like meditated and contacted Luke over like the psychic airwaves to get his recipe, but I, I'm not sure that that happened. Yeah. Does she do the uh, like the maraschino cherries or like uh, uh she's like got some orange? Berries. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. And, and went, went that route. She tried oranges one night, but she didn't end up liking it very much. Yeah, I like the. I like both the, the Angostura and the, the Peychauds, or however you say those bitters, if you want to do the, the, the other style with, with rye. Uh, but uh, they're, they're good stuff, man. So, have you tried to make your own bitters? I have not. I was wondering. We have a friend who is a, a bourbon uh, alchemist, mm-hmm. right? And he made his own bitters that time. I just I wondered if you had gotten into that. I've seen that that's like a... A thing you can get into, and and definitely there's like a like gourmet bitters that you can buy now, and a lot of <laughs> a lot of the finer liquor stores here here in the bluegrass, you know, bourbon's a big thing, so they've got they tailor to that market. But I've I've wanted to try some of the fancy bitters. Yeah, some night, some night we'll have to do like a an alchemy lab. Yeah, with uh, various bourbons and various bitters, and maybe sometime when John can uh can join yeah. us, or at least be on the on Skype. Yeah. You yeah. can watch us drink. <laughs> had a, uh, a Kentucky moment at work recently. Some guy told her that Jack Daniels was his favorite bourbon, and she had to be like, oh, no. <laughs> she put the foot down? <laughs> yeah. go. That's awesome. She, he was like, what do you know? You didn't eat, you're not even from there. You just live there. She's adopted. It literally says on the side of the bottle, Tennessee whiskey. Yeah. Yeah. It's, 
yeah, she can read. Anyway, what are you guys drinking? <laughs> There's a big pail of ice there I see in the foreground. So we've got a a 12 pack that we're wrapping up the last the last four of. This is the the mixer from from New Belgium Brewery. I think it just popped up here in in Lexington last week. I saw it in Kroger and snagged a bunch and I saw a bunch of uh, posts on the Facebook from from local people who were drinking drinking the fat tire in the local pubs. Uh it's here and it's pretty awesome. It is awesome. From the shores of Colorado all the way to to Kentucky. Yeah, so I've got the 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 uh, Ranger IPA. And what do you have, Josh? I've got the Fat Tire Amber Ale because I like to keep my beers uh, malty and delicious and sweet. Yeah. And uh, I am too much of a baby to handle the the hoppiness. And on this can, on your new Belgium Ranger can, there is a Ranger hat. And uh, that hat is just full of hops. Yeah, it is it is super hoppy. They're pretty good. I like there's another one here in the in the, the can that we have. It's the the slow ride, which I'd never had before, and they call it a session IPA. I don't know if I, I like the use of the word session with beers now. It's kind of trendy. <laughs> Basically, just just say that it's lower alcohol content, or don't say anything at all. Just call it what it is. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, it's a, it's a softer IPA, but it's still got the hop. Uh, so I'm going to drink that next, and then the other one that we have here, Josh, what is that? That is a New Belgium Snapshot wheat beer. Yeah. Uh, which I will probably be having unless you want it. Um, because if the can is green, uh, I stay away. <laughs> <laughs> right on. We just, we just, we just, we just hammered out, uh, what you drinking, uh, to make up for, for the last recording. We had to, to really, really get into it this time around. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know what, what that means though. It's, it's time for one thing. One thing. But- <laughs> John, what's your one thing? Uh, I was discussing this with Luke beforehand again. Uh, we were we were texting back and forth, and I think I'm going to go with a Netflix original programming show, uh, The Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt. Okay. And Kara and I, the wife and I, we started watching that the other day, and we mainlined about six episodes uh, one Sunday afternoon, and it is pretty hilarious. I really enjoyed it. It's got uh, the, the red-haired lady from The Office the later seasons of The Office, and she stars as Kimmy Schmidt, and I, Tina Fey has written a very good show. It's very hilarious. I would encourage you, if you if you need something light, after listening to a dark and brooding cast about vampires, you need to lighten up the mood, turn on Kimmy Schmidt, and uh, it, it, it'll brighten your spirits. What's the what's the shtick? Like, what's, the, what's her lot in the life? The premise is that Kimmy Schmidt and these three other women were held captive by a Jim Jones-esque a uh, cult leader in this bunker underground for 15 years and they were discovered and pulled out and now they're trying to get back into the world and the other ones it's the first part takes place in Indiana of course my home state <laughs> where the cult <laughs> is living underground but uh most of them stay there in Indiana she goes to New York to try and like live her dreams that she had when she was 15 years old and kind of like become an adult and try and figure out the world and of course you know wackiness ensues <laughs> That's a pretty dark sounding premise for what you're what you're saying is a sort of right. a lighthearted it, romp. Yeah. It is. It is. It's really dark. Uh but that's kind of the point. Like she won't be broken by the, her dark past and she has this like unendable smile and faces the world with a bright and sunny disposition. That description sounds like Caesar Romero's Joker from the Batman nineteen sixty six TV show. <laughs> <laughs> cool. That sounds great. I, I saw that uh that 
was uploaded like last week sometime. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On yeah, Friday? Last week, I think. Okay. So that's um, for me. Uh, how about you, Josh? What are you liking lately? <clears throat> well, mine is, uh, my one thing is like five things, but I'm going to try to keep it concise. <laughs> uh, Ashley and I um, mainlined, completely mainlined uh, Game of Thrones. Uh, four seasons in about two weeks. Thanks to all the snow days we had, <laughs> we watched the entire, the entire series. Um, we watched season two in one day. So, you know, that, I think that's a pretty impressive feat. But anyway, so I've, I've had Game of Thrones on my mind. Game of Thrones is, has sort of dominated my Facebook feed, everything. So I was, uh, checking out George R.R. R. Martin's blog, his not a blog. Um, which I believe is grrm.livejournal.com. That man still uses Live Journal. It's it's like we're in uh, 1999. It's awesome. He's Even the only reason Live Journal still around. <laughs> he might be. Uh, not only does he use Live Journal, but he also uses the emoticons. Like you know, you you make your post, and then at the bottom it says, "Today I'm listening to blah blah blah," uh, and I'm <laughs> and I'm feeling confident, and there's like a smiley, like an emoticon. Yeah. Um, and so he posted recently that this October they're going to release a collection of the three Dunk and Egg novellas. I have written down short stories, but really I guess they're novellas or novelettes. Um, the Hedge Knight, Sworn Sword, and The Mystery Knight. Uh, all three of those are out now, I believe, in various anthology collections. But they've not been collected together yet this fall. I think in October they're going to come out in one volume. And that volume is going to be completely illustrated by Gary Gianni who illustrated the uh, Savage Tales of Solomon Cain uh, by Del Rey and the uh, slightly earlier edition of this by Wondering Star Press. Gary Gianni's awesome. Westeros is awesome. Game of Thrones is awesome. So I really am excited for this collection. I, I don't I don't know if you guys can tell. So that'll be October. That's, I guess, my one thing, this Game of Thrones news. Um, but I also did just pick up a uh, coffee table style book called The World of Ice and Fire, which uh, is written. The, the shtick of this is that it's a history of Westeros written by a maester of the uh, the the new gods, not the Jack Kirby new gods. Um, <laughs> and as such, it's sort of an unreliable narrator, unreliable history. Mm -hmm. Um and so I think within its pages, you will get sort of some nuggets of truth. But much like everything else that uh, George writes, it's going to be sort of hidden within this uh, uncertainty, I guess, just like you would see in any other history book that you would read. So I'm excited cool. to dig into that as well. So my one thing is uh, <laughs> George R.R. R. Martin's Game of Thrones. <laughs> I'm not gonna lie. I thought your one thing was gonna be uh, the University of Kentucky men's basketball team approaching perfection. Correct. We uh, and I say we as though I'm on the team. Um, <clears throat> the University of Kentucky men's basketball team uh, finished the regular season 31 and 0, and we now cruise into the SEC tournament uh, where we get a bye to the semifinals, and. That's pretty sweet, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then undoubtedly they will be the number one overall seed in the in the NCAA tournament. Um, I look for them to go all the way this year. Undefeated yeah. perfection. <laughs> <laughs> Luke, one thing. Uh my one thing is the new TV show on AMC, Better Call Saul. Uh the the spin off from Breaking Bad. Oh. And 
and it's really damn good. Uh, it started out, I would say, enjoyable, but the last episode this past, this past, uh, uh, this past week is called 5-0, and you get like the, the, the backstory for Mike Ermintrout, who's like one of the coolest characters, uh, one of my favorite characters pretty much in any medium. Uh, he's, he is a, a horribly tortured guy, and it's, it's such a well done little, little vignette that explains so much about that character's backstory. It just sort of, sort of left me, uh, with my jaw on the floor at the end of it. I loved it. It was really, really good. Cool. One of the best pieces of noir I've ever seen. Yeah. It's just, it's just so, so solid. The, the show is definitely taking its time, which is pretty cool. Uh, I like the show just in general. You know, it has a slightly different feel than Breaking Bad, but it's, it's still a bit of comedy, but it has just really dark moments. And I think one of the, the cleverest things, at least this is how it strikes me. I don't know if it's intentional. I got, I got to think that it is, but like the, the intro music is relatively short, the same way that Breaking Bad, uh, had a very short little motif that it played at the beginning of every episode. Uh, Better Call Saul does the same thing, but it's a very different kind of feel. It's not, uh, sort of mysterious and intriguing sounding. It's more like a, like a little blues jam. Uh, yeah. and it's, it's just a few chords that are played and you get the, this, this awesome 1980s VHS tape style, uh, uh, listing of the, the, the credits for the episode and the little blues medley comes to what should be a completion. Like it's, it's sort of working through the little blue scale and just half of a second before the final, uh, note sort of rings out, the, the theme music stops and it leaves me at least dis, disjoint. I feel, I feel jarred. And disjointed every time I hear it. And this at this point, it's like five episodes in. And I think it just really illustrates how the, how the story has this feel of sort of an upbeat, swinging kind of, uh, kind of story about a slick, a slick attorney. But at the same time, there's this disconcerting element to it that just pops up and it's awesome. That's it. <laughs> a little silliness with a little darkness mixed in there. Sounds yeah, like it's good. I mean, it's, it's just really, uh, turning out to, to be, to be something enjoyable. And okay. I didn't know for sure how it was gonna, how I was gonna like it, but at this point, I'm, I'm on board. Now, yeah, I think you and I mm-hmm. were in agreement that we were worried when we first heard them talking about it. It's like, that just seems like going to the bell cow once too many times, and it's been way more enjoyable than I thought it would be. Yeah, yeah. So it's a prequel. Is that, is that true? Yeah, yeah. It is showing Saul Goodman before he saw Goodman. And okay. I think that's, I think that's a, a neat approach. Like the, I don't know, I guess you could deduce like at what point it takes place before Breaking Bad if you were paying attention to some, some of the details, but I have to think that it's taking place like in 2002, 2003, something like that. Okay. And I think yeah, Breaking Bad started start. around like 2007 or eight mm-hmm. and it stayed in that timeline, you know, throughout the entirety of its run. Yeah. So it never got more than like a year or so, uh, past that start point. It was more or less real time. Right, right, right. So Walter White had birthdays, went through his cancer issues, all that kind of stuff, but it wasn't ever like it jumped forward to 2013. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. I still haven't checked it out, and I think the reason is I keep forgetting when it comes on. It's Monday night right? uh, at I'm, like 10. 
I'm not for sure. We just I, I've got it set up on the DVR, so oh, DVR. I catch it whenever, whenever it comes on, like Mondays, whenever it pops 10 up Eastern, there. Nine Central on AMC. <laughs> I still have a VCR hooked up, so <laughs> maybe someday I'll upgrade and join the new millennium. That was one thing. <laughs> we have to have like transition music. Yeah. It's becoming a it's becoming a thing. <laughs> or we could just leave it awkward. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and that was all. <laughs> Moving on. Okay, so we're about to get into some some Robert E. Howard, but before we do, we have two books to quickly mention. Yes. Uh the first one, we've been talking about this over the past few episodes, is The Lost Level by Brian Keene. This is published by Apex publications and if you go to apex publications website you can get that book for 50 percent off if you enter in chromecast all in capital letters uh as the 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 promo code and you'll be able to get either the e-copy or the hard copy for 50 percent off it's a good little romp listen to previous episodes for a description of that uh the other one is a book called Nothing is Strange that's written by Mike Russell. This is, I think, the first book published by the company Strange Books, which is a UK company. Their website is strangebooks.com. Uh, we just had the advanced reader copy of that sent to us not too long ago. Josh and I are, are going to do our due diligence and read some of it and talk about it. But for now, know that you can go and pick that up at strangebooks.com. Yeah, definitely check out the small press uh, community. Apex, Strange Books. Uh, there's a lot of really good material coming out from uh, publication uh, uh, publishers like those, and you can help support the uh, the little guy or the local guy, I guess. The industry, man. This the is industry. where it's at. This is where this is. <laughs> things are hopping. You got to get in there. You got to get this book. You got to be part of it. <laughs> All right, let's bring it around to some Robert E. Howard. Okay, before before we get into the story, there is one other thing that I want to do. A segment that I would like to introduce. I don't know if it's really going to be a segment. It may never recur, but I'm going to call it <laughs> King Conan Watch. <laughs> <laughs> okay, awesome. <laughs> and and uh, I'm going to scour the internet every week to bring you the Chromecast listeners. And, uh, and I realize that some of you probably are not fans of. Arnold as Conan, but uh, I am, so I'm going to talk about it anyway. Um, <laughs> so, MovieWeb.com posted a short write-up just this week. The The byline is uh, March 9th, 2015. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger just wrapped up a crazy weekend attending the Arnold Classic and Sports Festival in Columbus. While there, he offered more insight into his upcoming sequel, Terminator Genesis, delving into the epic fight with his 1984 doppelganger. He then went on to confirm that Legend of Conan will, in fact, be his next movie. Dramatic pause. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me more. Well, uh, I'll paraphrase. uh, The Arnold Fans website, which prides itself on having accurate information about all things Arnold, uh, (laughs) was told by uh, Legend of Conan producers that they're going to start shooting this film fall 2015 after Schwarzenegger gets finished uh, with the Terminator Genesis world tour. And so this fall, he'll he'll don the, the Iron Crown. Can we call it the Iron Crown? We'll do it. Of Aqualonia, the jeweled crown of Aqualonia <laughs> upon his troubled brow. And they'll shoot this movie that we've been waiting for since 1982. But uh, before then, we'll, we'll get Schwarzenegger's zombie movie, Maggie, which looks interesting. Have you guys looked into this? Uh-uh. Okay. Right yeah, it looks neat. And then Terminator Genesis will open. Schwarzenegger will do his world tour. And uh, uh, they'll undoubtedly do a sequel to, to Terminator Genesis because people will go watch Terminator movies no matter what. Right, Luke? 
you and I have. <laughs> then he'll shoot Legend of Conan, and they're looking for a, a opening in November 2016. Arnold Watch 2015. <laughs> I guess it's more Arnold Watch, yeah, than, than King Conan. But here's the thing. I'd say if they're looking for extras, we sign up. That, that would be incredible. I tweeted Schwarzenegger today and said, "Hey, we read some rumors that uh, the neck that that you." Uh, are getting close to a second draft of a script. Is this true? We're real excited. Please tweet back. <laughs> now the, the writer is, uh, this guy named, his last name is Beale. And, uh, his only other credit that I'm aware of is a movie that John and I saw in the theater called Gangster Squad. That was a movie that had Emma Stone in it. That's what I'll say about it. That was a movie that did in fact have Emma Stone in it. And we got our wives to go. Because it had Ryan Gosling. Ryan Gosling. It had a bunch of people in it too, right? It did, Josh yeah. Brolin. Josh Brolin. Didn't it have like a Sean Penn in it? Sean Penn was a bad guy. <laughs> yeah, I heard I heard y'all's review of it, and I was really psyched for it. And then I got unpsyched and just never mm. never went. And you should watch it. it. You, should, you should watch it. Um, there's a lot of bare knuckle boxing. I'm a fan. Yeah. So anyway, that's King Conan watch. Uh, for this episode of the Chromecast, if you guys have any speculation, any any rumors, you read anything on the internet, anything, anything, send your fanfic our way. Yeah, your fanfic, your art, um, whatever kind of drawings you want to. <laughs> I'm opening myself up here, but I want to see it. I want to read it. Send it our way. You want to feel it. I do. <laughs> In my soul. Will Chamberlain gently caressed Arnold's hair. Hell, hold on, hold on. I'm writing it down. <laughs> anyway, tonight's story by Robert E. Howard, The Hills of the Dead. Luke, do you have publication information for I this do. one? I do. I'm going to grab beer number two. Okay. And tell you that the publication history of this story is that it was first published in Weird Tales in August of 1930. That's all I got. Okay. I think one of the, the 70s editions of the Solomon Kane stories was called The Hills of the Dead. I saw... Uh, at least a couple different covers popping up on the internet that look pretty, pretty awesome. Our uh, current cover photo on Facebook is a snippet from one of those uh, covers, right, John? <laughs> yeah, I, I tried to Photoshop that together. Uh, the The real cover looks even more uh, like a Harlequin romance book. That is true. Yeah, I did look for it. Um, we've got Solomon Kane standing with his uh, black shirt sort of ripped open, his uh, muscles rippling beneath it, uh, looking a desperately. Hairless chest. A hairless chest. Looking. He shaves. His Puritan hat cocked at a jaunty angle, looking off into the distance with a solemn sort of concerned look on his face. Yep. And uh, we also have Zuna, right? The uh, uh, girl that we meet through the course of the Hills of the Dead. But that is not where we open. That is not. Where do we open? We open in a like a cave with Nalanga and Solomon King hanging out, and Nalanga is kind of detailing to Kane, "Hey, remember that cool time that uh, you saw me do that neat magic trick where I possessed a dead body? Uh, I'm pretty sure we're blood brothers because you kill people, I kill people. <laughs> we're tight. Yeah, we well, and they also have something in common, and that is a love, an unabiding love for the African jungle." And so, presumably, you know, the, this is along the uh, the west coast of Africa. And if we're talking about African biogeography, if I can get into my biology nerd uh, <laughs> mode for just a moment, 
then we're talking about an area that is uh, roughly just south of Sierra Leone and just north of Angola and probably right around the Congo, right? Um, and so that's where we open up in the heart of the jungle here on the slave coast or the west coast of Africa where uh, slaves were exported from the 1600s through the 1800s uh, almost constantly with Solomon Cain and Nalanga discussing mysticism, discussing the call of the jungle, etc., etc. And as a parting gift, Nalanga bestows upon Solomon a mighty juju staff. Yeah. And the do we the way the staff appears to me seems as though Nalanga used some sort of magic to knock Solomon Cain out. Doesn't he sort of go to sleep with the flames and the smoke rising around Nalanga? And when, yeah, he, yeah. when he awakens, the staff is there. Do you think there's any significance to that? I don't know. I, I don't I have a. I feel like he couldn't witness. Nalanga doesn't make it there in the cave, but he couldn't even witness it being like brought forth. That came, I think, later in the story. Nalanga says, You were like a small child when it comes to magic. You know absolutely nothing. And even witnessing this would have like blown his mind too much. He can't see it get made or get brought into this realm. We don't know really what it can do, but he says, Nalanga says, when, when your guns fail, when your knives fail, you can use this. It's mighty magic. And if you want me, lay this on your breast, fold your hands on it and go to sleep and dream. And I'll come to you in your dreams. And it's pointed. And it's pointed. It's a stave. It has some sort of a, uh, like a cat head. Is that what it looks like to you guys? Or a dog head? Cat or dog, yeah. Cat or a dog, yeah. On page 227 and mm-hmm. other pages, there are illustrations of it. Um, yeah. So it's a, a magical staff that makes Kane feel sort of uncomfortable, but he takes it anyway. And so Kane just strikes out, right? We're not really given a, an explanation for, for what's happening at this point. He's just, he's, he's got a feeling. That's a yeah. good point. Uh, this is one of the few times that Kane is just sort of on his way, right? He's not, vengeance bent he, he's between quests here i guess and how does he you know take his rest take his leisure he goes into the jungle to challenge it and potentially die that's pretty cool and that brings us to chapter two red eyes so he's kind of passing through like a uh, a grasslands type area, right? Like a yeah. more open area where I guess there are lions. Yeah. So, uh, if we go back to our biogeography map of Africa, which I'll post on the web, on the, on the, on the, uh, blog entry in the show notes. And I don't know why I was interested in this, but it just made me interested because we never get a sense of the direction that Cain is traveling. And even he says that, you know, he, he just was walking with no aim in mind. But if we look at our map here and look where the jungle uh, is in Africa, then if he really is around the Congo and he travels inland and north, then he would reach Savannah probably in about a two weeks walk. Right. And that, that does make sense for, uh, the, the other character that he runs into here in just a little bit as far as her descent. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got Kane. He's been traveling, chopping his way through the jungle. He's, he's worn out. He's travel worn, but there's something driving him to go onward and press onward and onward. And then we get to this, this scene um, that Robert E. Howard sort of paints that uh, gave me a little bit of a chill. And I'm, I'm disappointed that we never really come back to this. 
he says he starts to notice these vultures, you know, uh, gathering around, sitting around, circling in the air above, just just in front of him. And he begins to wonder what is drawing these um, these decomposers, right? The these vultures. And he gets through, pushes through the grass, and he sees at last the corpse of, of a, a native there, all bent out of shape, out of, you know, sort of contorted and, and dead, quite mm-hmm. clearly, with an enormous black snake. So we have a giant snake, a uh, staple of Robert E. Howard's tales. And his description of it, though, as it slithers away into the tall grass, says it moves so quickly that Cain was unable to decide its nature but it had a weird human-like suggestion about it. And I don't know about you guys, but I immediately started thinking, um, not, and this is not the first, the only time I thought about uh, the, the Conan tale, the Hour of the Dragon. Right, right. And so we saw a city in uh, Stygia mm-hmm. in that story where uh, snakes were just sort of out on their own, you know, they were worshipped as gods or at least as avatars or priests of Set. And they had these characteristics that were almost human-like, vaguely human-like. Um, and I do know from another story that we haven't fully discussed yet on the show, another Conan story, The God in the Bowl, which uh, at some point in the story we see a very human-like snake appear. So I really like this. I really like this human-like quality of the snake that darts into the grass that we see. Mm-hmm. And I was a little disappointed that Howard didn't come back to it. I actually was reminded of uh, Beyond the Black River. We talk, They talked in that story about the animals that were from around the beginning of time that knew things that we don't and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And some people could talk to them. And I actually thought maybe we were going to go that route, that there would be this like demon man snake in the grass. So yeah, we were, we were walking along the same path again, Josh. Yeah. But at any rate, this puts Kane on guard. And so he gets his musket from his shoulder and, uh, starts, you know, walking with, with, uh, the intent of firing on anything that he sees. And that's lucky for him. Right. Cause what happens next? A so- uh, woman just comes like barreling out of the brush at him and she's running and screaming. And sure enough, there's a lion chasing her. He shoulders the musket and just in time, nails this lion as it leaps through the air and saves this woman. And this is where we start to get into more of the the uncomfortable parts of the story, I guess. Or are we going to approach that? Well, you know, I, I think that at this point we, we realize that the writing, especially when it deals with the natives of Africa can be somewhat distasteful to us as modern day readers. Looking back, you know, it's easy to say, well, yeah. this is this is pretty racist. And it is. You know, it's not an excuse. We're not excusing it. We're not condoning it, et cetera, et cetera. Right? The, the same sorts of uh, disclaimers that we've said before that, you know, we don't speak this way because it's not sensitive to uh, other peoples and other cultures. But in Howard's day, this was pretty common. Right. And this and, is probably how a Puritan would have viewed this woman, a man of Cain's time. Yeah. From he does speak as, as a man of his time. From Great Britain. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, there's there's this uncomfortableness where uh when Cain sort of supposes about this this lady's um 
lineages. Yeah, there's a discussion of sort of how her ancestry is different from the West Coast Africans. And, you know, he uses the term high, like as a, as a, as a form, uh, a descriptor for, for more advanced or of, uh, more human stature. And so that does get at the point that, you know, previous, uh, white people, Used to, to hold the opinion that, that there were there were differences in terms of the, the evolutionary positioning of all different races, and Cain here is making a distinction that at least uh, this girl that he just saved is of a different African descent and is probably more like him. She has finer features. She's probably from the northern portion of of Africa, right? Yeah. The, um. And so, yeah, that's, that's sort of distasteful, but, uh, Kane is sort of making sort of a, a guess as to where this person could be from. Cause she startles him and runs out of the bush. Right. Yeah. And so in deciding how to speak to her, how to approach communicating with this, this person, he uses, uh, a dialect of the native tongue or one of the native tongues that he knows. And luckily she speaks something that's very similar to that tongue. And so they can communicate. And that's pretty fortunate, <laughs> I think. Yeah, that's great that they, they both know common and they can, they can, they can communicate. <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> no common. <laughs> and so Kane asks her where she's from and why she's out here and this and that. And she says her name is Zuna. Zuna? How did you guys pronounce it? I, say, I guess I said Zuna. Zuna? Zuna. 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 Okay. Uh, we'll probably interchange those then. And we're not helpful in this case. <laughs> um, she says, my mother whipped me for breaking a cooking kettle and I ran away because I was angry and now I'm afraid. Please let me go back to my mother. So this, this is pretty bad. She runs away for getting in trouble after she gets in trouble and then a lion almost gets her, you know? Um, luckily Solomon Kane is there to help her and he assures her he, he's not going to hurt her. Yeah. He's, she thinks that he's the great white savior and savior being a god. Yeah, capital, <laughs> capital letters, right? Like she thinks that – and even asks, are you a god? And he says, no. <laughs> I am only a man, though the color of my skin is not as yours. Lead me now to your village. <laughs> <laughs> and if someone asks you if you're a god, <laughs> if you're Solomon Cain, you say no. Um She's thinking about it. The sun's going down, though. Kane's looking around at the at the uh, countryside, and he notices that there are some hills uh, pretty close by, and he spies a cave, and he says, we could go to that cave and hole up for the night. It's no good for us to be out here where there's nocturnal predators. Um, we need to hole up and build a fire, and I'll take you home tomorrow, and you'll be safe with me. She says, uh-uh, we shouldn't do that. And he <laughs> kind of just says, no. Remember, I'm the great white savior. <laughs> So we're going to go there. Um, yeah, she, she says, not in the hills, not in the hills, master, better the lions. She's afraid of the hills. Why? Why would that be? She doesn't communicate it. Um, but Kane gives her sort of the, the strong arm and says, that's nonsense. We'll, we'll go and stay in the cave and be nice and dry and protected and we'll go home tomorrow. And then he tells her, go get some dry grass. I'll get dinner ready. I'll start the fire and everything will be great. Everything is not great, though. <laughs> He's building the fire. He's getting the jerky ready. And these two guests arrive. These two strange-looking fellows that he doesn't quite understand why they look the way they do. And he makes a classic mistake in vampire lore. He invites them in. 
which is number one rule, never invite a, a vampire in, right, Josh? That is true. Never do that. They, they will come in they, and you'll be their thrall, yep. et cetera, et cetera. He, they come in and sit, kind of sit at the fire that's not fully going yet. And as soon as his back is turned, they, they're trying to get to him. They're going to eat him. Well, yeah. So uh, there's a, there's a couple of really cool things here. One is that these guys don't say anything, right? They're totally nude. Their features are different than normal people, right? They, they look more bestial. They look more, um, evil, I dead. suppose, sinister, and they look dead <laughs> and their eyes are red. They kind of, kind of glow with a sinister light. And I don't know about you guys, but if I were, were in a cave building a fire, getting ready to make dinner in the middle of the savannah and these two completely silent naked dudes showed up and just stared at me, I wouldn't invite them in. I feel like that's another part of the story, though, that Kane's hubris in this situation, his his white hubris is almost his downfall in this particular situation. Oh, really? I didn't think about it that way. I thought of it more as, you know, he was doing his charitable Christian duty. Yeah, I guess that's kind of what I was thinking about. And and, and to this point, the plot didn't really strike me as, as being something too unique uh, with what we've what we've read previously so i didn't read into it uh like how you, how you're talking john but actually that i like that interpretation to it yeah for sure yeah i, I can totally see it anyway he because you know he disregards zana's uh advice yes he's like no 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 we're doing this child yeah, i know better <laughs> uh, yeah he's just kind of walking around the the jungle walking around africa like he owns the place <laughs> Yeah, and he doesn't really that that Nalanga and all of this this juju and magic and stuff is all superstition that he's above it. So even if he sees something weird like this, it's just weird to him. It's not an indicator that there's vampires around. Even though he has seen it time and time again, he's seen dark magic happening, right? He's seen Nalanga um, sort of throw his soul, his spirit into a, another person as though it were a fetish. And, yeah. uh, e but even though Kane has seen these things with his own eyes, he refuses to believe them. And that could be, I guess, hubris, right? Yeah. You guys, you guys have at this point in our discussion changed my, my opinion of this story. Oh, good. Like I, I, I'm now, I'm, I'm, I'm digging it. Like I want to, get further into this discussion to see okay. like what else I missed. All right, cool. So like John said, uh, Zana shows up with the firewood, right? And then she screams. And that is the moment that the vampires, <laughs> oh, did I say vampires? I meant these two strangers, um, the red eyed monsters, the red eyed monsters attack. <laughs> and, uh, one of them comes at Kane, but luckily he, he's swift, right? He's cat like with his reflexes and he's got the, the staff pointy. He stuck him with the pointy end. Mm hmm. Um, and I don't think he really notices what happens to this person after he sticks him, right? No, he's a little caught up in getting choked to death. Exactly, because the other guy comes over and chokes him to death. And, uh, Kane luckily still has his sidearm with him, so he shoots the guy in the side with his pistol. Yeah. And then beats his head in with the, the butt of it, and he won't stop coming. So Solomon Kane quick draws his, uh, his staff and his pistol. He's dual wielding. Uh, and he's able to take on both of these red-eyed monster, in parentheses, vampires. Uh, and and the second one's a bit more of a problem. Yeah. 
There, there's a part, in fact, that's pretty intense where the, the, uh, the red eyed monster has Kane by the hair and is pulling his, his, uh, head back to expose his neck. And, you know, you know what's coming because you, you kind of get the sense that these things are not mortal and they're, they're after something very specific. They have an unholy thirst. One that I cannot be that slaked. This was interesting, I guess. It was just some of the most disgusting writing, I guess, that I've seen Howard do, where this whole fact that the guy's face is busted in by the butt of a gun and the other half of his face is shot in, but he's still smiling. He has this terrible grin on his face as he reaches for Kane's neck. It was really ugly and dirty and nasty, and, and I liked it. It was It was interesting. Yeah, it it certainly is is gritty in a way that the Conan stories, no matter how bloody they got, just never really got this grisly, I think. What do you guys think? I, I would say that uh I think maybe they did, but they had like a, a little touch of the the sleaze or the exploitation feel to it. Uh like the Conan stories that like Zuthul of the Dust comes to comes to mind. Like there's some some really kinda kind of sinister sleazy moments to that mm-hmm. but it's not just outright uh like grotesque it seems like there's a little bit more of the what's the right word not sex appeal i mean yeah i guess that works cheesecake yeah the, yeah exactly exactly like it's a, a cheesecakey element and here we have solomon kane as the fatherly uh sort of paternal role you know he's talking to her to zena as if she's a child mm-hmm. and so you don't have that level to it so it's just this this horror I've I've always thought that the the Kane fight scenes have been more clinical almost in their approach. Even the one in the last episode where we talked about the knife coming down, like there's talk of inches and and uh beating hearts, like it was just much more clinical. And this was this like ragged, disgusting it was a horror story. There's this guy with who's missing half a face but can still smile as he tries to chomp down on Solomon Kane. Yeah, it certainly is more personal, if nothing else. Yeah, personal. Like, That's a good way of putting it. You're you're in there with Kane and you're I guess observing everything. You're 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 hearing you can almost hear the muscles in Kane's neck creak as as he struggles to um you know, prevent his neck from being exposed. Right. I, I just I yeah, I, I think this is some pretty nasty, dirty um, visceral, visceral writing here, and it's good. Yeah, I I really wanted to see how this turned out. We know though that Kane isn't going to be taken <laughs> out by these guys. No, no, Th- these are mini yeah, bosses. We're only halfway into the story. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is just a mini boss. This is just a uh, a random encounter, right? Um, but this guy, as he gets run through with the staff that Nalanga gives. Uh, Kane, I almost said Conan, gives Kane, uh, he, the, the guy falls apart completely. And Kane, I think is, his mind is, he's having a hard time computing all of this. I mean, clearly he thinks these are, these are the spawn of Satan. The, these things are evil. But a little later, we're going to see how Kane thinks everything is evil, right? So we'll see. Chapter three. Dream magic. And Kane is starting to realize that these guys were always dead, even before he staked them real good Buffy style with his, his magic <laughs> cat cane. 
but that they were they were vampires. That these are the spawns of Satan. They're evil, and he doesn't get it. Uh, I feel like in our first story, he fought a ghost, right? Yes, uh, a hang, a hanged ghost, and even now he's still. He can't process this. This doesn't fit into his Puritan worldview. And he kind of realizes he's out of his depth and he needs help. Yeah. So he uses the magic juju stick to, to contact Nalonga. That's right. Do you, you guys remember what Nalonga's instructions were? You fall asleep, fold your arms, lay the staff on your chest. And as you drift into slumber, I will visit you in your dreams. Exactly. And so Cain does just that as they sleep for the night, and Nalonga tells him what? Not only does he come and tell them, hey, these are vampires and all that, uh, and here's what we're going to do. Go get Zana's boyfriend, and I'll help you figure out this situation. Did you notice, though, that Nalonga doesn't speak with pidgin English in in the dreamscape. I did not notice that. Yeah, that, that's really the one thing that stuck out to me when I was reading the story that I thought was kind of clever. Uh, I don't, I, whenever we encountered Nalonga before, the way that he was speaking, you know, is, is, is hokey. Yeah. And, and it rubs you the wrong way in that racial kind of, uh, way <laughs> that well, this story's written. Yeah, it's pidgin English. Yeah. Right? It's, it's English, but, Nothing is conjugated correctly. Nothing. Yeah. 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 But now we, we, we see. Send this girl to her village soon after sunup when the lions have gone to their lairs, said Nalonga, and bid her bring her lover to you at this cave. There, make him lie down as if to slumber, holding the voodoo stave. I, I guess this was the part, like Luke said, this stuck out to me that we've we talked repeatedly solomon kane seems to be the the character now that we focused a lot on racism with and this howardian approach to race but this almost seems to be saying hey at the spiritual level if you're going to talk talk spirit to spirit we're all the same and we all talk the same language yeah. I, I don't know if that's what howard's trying to say but that's what i took from it no i i i kind of i kind of took it that way John, but I also interpreted it as like another level to Nalonga's showmanship because in the previous okay. story, we know that he likes to, to put on the big show and talk about how, how great his juju is. <laughs> like I kind of, I kind of feel like he's, uh, I don't know if I like this portrayal because amongst his own community, he's kind of acting out a stereotype for the community. When he, when he shouldn't be, like he, he, he could clearly be presenting himself as a more, uh, sort of formal, educated, holy man. I don't know. I don't know if I'm explaining myself. It just seems kind of weird. Like he's being disingenuous, but intentionally so with, uh. No, I see, I see what you're saying definitely that he is this powerful man. That he, he is magical and he is the strongest member of the stories we've read so far and definitely the most powerful of his community, but he like really digs being this like goofy magic professor, you know? Yeah. And he plays that up to, uh, to the nth degree instead of just being powerful. What's the, what's the mighty, the mighty wizard in the original Dragonlance books? Raceland? No, isn't there like an old bumbling wizard? Like an old bumbling wizard who's actually like 
Oh yeah. I can't think Fizbin. of Fizbin, yeah. That's what it is. I wonder like if <laughs> I don't know. Like that's it's the same trope, right? Like you have the bumbling but, mm-hmm. but honestly very very wise and, and knows all the secrets. Like Gandalf is even in yeah. some ways that too. Uh I don't know. It's just I I guess you can read into it the racial element and that's why I just was was really struck by how this how this appears in the story. I don't know. I I I guess I don't have any any firm opinion on things. It just struck me as a is an odd sort of writing technique. Yeah, it certainly is. And I, I like the thought of, you know, on a spiritual level, everyone's the same. And so everyone can, can communicate clearly. Um, but you're right. It seems as though with all the power that Nalanga has, he could hold himself in a different way. I, I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's complicated. That would be an interesting question for uh, Robert E. Howard. If, yeah, we, if yeah. we could only conjure him, you know, <laughs> Why? Why could Nalanga speak well in the dream? And does not Nalanga have a responsibility to behave better? Like that's, <laughs> exactly. This is this is. We need a a much more diverse crowd to have yeah. this conversation. I think so too. Would be awesome. Like this would be a a cool thing to tackle. Yeah. It's one that I I wish I had asked Jeff in the episode we interviewed him. He mentioned the magic Negro trope that's become such established thing nowadays with like. The legend of Bagger Vance and all that. <laughs> yeah, but, we'll just call it the uh, Bagger Vance trope yeah, from now the on. Bagger Vance trope. Uh, and I guess I was curious if Nalanga is one of the earlier representations of that, and especially in pulp literature. That would be a good question, Jeff. If you're <laughs> listening, if you're listening, give us a call at eight five nine four two nine Crom. Or hey, man, just join us next next time. Or if anybody else knows about that specific question. Seriously, tell us because you know I, I, there there is the the trickster sort of element that pops up in a lot of African mythology, mm-hmm. uh, and I have to think that the, the 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 magical Negro is like a trope that dates back to like the old South, like the Confederacy and and that kind of setting. Uh, given African American affiliations with with their like uh, spiritual groups, you know, as mm-hmm. as a like a uh, a source of unity and like protection within their, their, you know, oppressed sort of situation in in Southern uh, United States. But I don't, I, I would, I would be curious to know how that pops up in writing. Cause it's not outright coming to me, like anything written by like, say Mark Twain, who's like one of the famous Southern writers, right. Of, yeah. of that kind of era. I mean, can you guys think of, of anybody? <laughs> Not not right off the top of my head, but I can't think of anything like Nalanga. No, yeah, the or, most powerful character in the story. Yeah, and I guess Jim I'm thinking and Huck Finn is powerful, but in a very different way. Right. I mean, I, I haven't read any Faulkner really uh, to speak of, so I don't know. Even just removing that fantastic element, if you still have that sort of uh, archetype that pops up in some other some other yeah. Southern literature, and I guess. Talking about the 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 Bagger Vance trope, this that's the more PC way of saying it, or whatever. Uh, it's always seemed to me like this reaction to uh, we didn't have empowered black people in our stories, so we'll make them the most powerful. And I don't know if that's how Howard approached this. I doubt it, but that's what that trope has always meant to me. So it's a little different than like Jim and Huck Finn and all that kind of stuff. 
But I, I do think that it's telling that Solomon Cain is not the w- wisest or most powerful or uh, the, the one who inevitably saves the day in the story. It's not him. Yeah. And, and that gets, I think, like to the, 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 the type of thing that we discuss when we, uh, when we hit on pigeons from hell, like that there are, uh, cultures that are, that are deeply rooted in like a, a primitive spiritual knowledge. And, and Africa is that, uh, not only in like pigeons from hell, but this story too. So I guess that's a source of strength and, and, uh, the upper hand that they have over Solomon Cain. And Howard definitely seemed to buy into that, that almost evolutionary psychology angle of Africa knew more about the world than we did. Would you agree? In, in his stories, it certainly seems that way. Um, yeah. I, I do have copies of the, um, hippocampus press letters between Lovecraft and Howard that I've still <laughs> have not had a chance to really dig into yet. Um, but well, it would be to read this story. Yeah. I had to read this story for the podcast. I, I don't know if any answers come to light from that communication, but you would think that given the, uh, um, stereotypes, I guess, or, or not even really stereotypes given the, the, f- Archetypes, I guess, that both of these authors use uh, when dealing with race. You would think that this issue would have come up in their conversations. It might be in there somewhere. Um, I haven't come across it yet. But yeah, these are all good, really good questions that I hope someone (laughs) listening uh, knows the answer to and can... uh, Mark Rusty, anybody out there. Anybody who's listening. (laughs) SOS. No, seriously, we'd love to hear from you guys. So uh, give us a call, shoot us an email, let us know. What you think about this issue? Regardless, though, Kane has a plan now. We yeah. need uh, Kron. 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 The Kron cast. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, go get Kron, he says to Zuna, your, your lover. And she says, well, okay, that's weird, but I will. And <laughs> so she goes and gets Kron. Kron comes back, presumably... Um, and in, in the story, uh, Howard says, evidently the girl had not minimized the white God's glory in her telling. So she is telling him all about what Solomon Cain is capable of. He knows things he's able, he was able to kill two of these vampires himself. Uh, he killed a lion with something like it was, there was pretty boss. Yeah. He's, he's pretty strong. And so Zana trusts him and thereby Kron trusts him. And so Cain gives uh uh Kron the staff and has him lay down holding the the staff in his hands. Kane steps back it says half ashamed of this mummery and wondering what if anything would come of it, which I find curious because yet again we know that Kane knows that Nalonga is legit. Uh but still his, his mind won't process it. Uh Kron gasps, gulps and stiffens, right? This is like a a death rattle or something. And Zena says, you've killed him. You've killed Kron. She is flies at Cain to attack him. Cain doesn't know what's going on, right? He's struck speechless. Uh, when suddenly Kron uh, raises up, opens his eyes, and the eyes are not those of Kron's. They glitter like Nalanga's eyes with knowing, wisdom, and knowledge. Yeah. And <laughs> Kron says, uh, I, yeah. 
Blood Brother, you got no greeting for Nalanga? And it takes Kane an embarrassingly long amount of time to uh, come to terms with the fact that Nalanga has, you know, displaced Kron's soul somehow and is there now with him. Yeah, especially and- given that we've seen <laughs> that he knows Nalanga can take over a, uh, an inanimate corpse. Like, I, I don't know, as a reader, it just, it's, it, 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 it you kind of wonder what the hell's the matter, Solomon. Yeah. You've seen this before. <laughs> so not to beat the same drum we beat in the last episode, but this was another part that made me think even more of the Spectre and this idea that Cain is a Christian agent of the Christian God. Like, not only does he not want to believe, he can't process it because he's, I know he's not, but in my head canon, he is the, the spiritual embodiment of Christian justice. And acknowledging pagan justice or pagan power is against his nature. Yeah, he can't because by doing so, he admits that there is a power that is equal to or potentially greater than the God that he worships and serves. Yet, as we as we've seen Howard describe it, he has a powerful attraction to that that pagan element. Right. Yeah. Yes. It's the it's the the truth that he continues to deny. But it, but it really is undeniable. Like his his draw towards this this land of darkness, this heart of darkness. He just <laughs> he just can't stay away. <laughs> well, this is the reason he's in Africa. I think is he wants to see more of this and get closer to it and and believe it and make himself believe it. And by immersing himself in the continent, by immersing himself in the culture, by just being there. Hopefully he'll see some of this again. And here he is. He's an addict, man. Like, yeah. like Solomon is, yeah. he's, he's like a vengeance addict that, that he's denying. I don't have a problem. Yeah, exactly. I'll tell you <laughs> when I've had enough. <laughs> well, not just a vengeance addict, but the, in the, what was it? Uh, the right hand of doom. He fights the gorilla. This is the story that he met in the longa in. Is that red? That's red shadows. Red right? shadows. Yeah. Red yeah. Shadows. yeah. Thank you. Uh, he, He's not just an addict on vengeance. He's an addict on Africa. It's yeah. this weird. The drums. Yeah. Like the drums are there and they speak to him more. They make more sense to him maybe than his actual religion. Yeah. And definitely it speaks to him in a way that his religion doesn't speak to him. And I guess that that's hard to reconcile with the, we've talked about racism a lot with this story. And I know we already hit this, but it's almost hard to reconcile that. Right. That yeah. The story is racist. The things they've said are racist. But there's also this immense respect on the part of Cain and I would presume even Howard for Africa, the power that it holds that we know today as kind of this racist idea. But there is a respect there that, that they both seem to hold. Yeah, it's it's just so crazy. The, you know, worldviews, like there can be social norms and, and worldviews within a, a culture that are that are just outright in conflict. And to think about, like, that just hurts your head to try to reconcile it. But, like, uh, Shanks was talking about uh, Howard's likely involvement with uh, Mexican uh, ladies of the night. and, and <laughs> Vampires? <his>, and his <laughs> prostitutes. Oh. And and his, his uh, you know, beliefs about Mexicans, which was probably the strongest, most distasteful sort of racial uh opinion he had, at least from like what I know from, uh, yeah, from, from things. So like, how, how did he reconcile that? How does he reconcile the things you're talking about here, John? Like it's, it's odd, but I, I think that really does 
add a uh, a compelling element to his work for sure, like the writing of it. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, I, I just don't know what to. Re- oh, I I can't reconcile it either, and we can just talk about it. We can't like put a definitive stamp on it though. Yeah, it's because we're still processing this, right? As a society, exactly. Yeah, I, and it's just very, it's just very interesting to me, and that everybody talks about Howard as the the racist pulp writer and all that. Yes, but there's 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 a there's an edge here. There's a nuance here that that gets lost if you just look at him like that. Exactly, and if you read one of these stories and you see, you know, these these bestial sort of descriptions of native peoples of Africa in a Solomon Cain story, I guess. And you stop there because that's distasteful. Well, you know, I respect that, you know, you, you, your views, that's fine. But I do think that you're missing something important. Yeah. And, and, you know, like what we're talking about here, again, we're not, we're not going to continue to use Lovecraft like as a, as a measuring stick, but like this is, this is not something that you see at least like in those works from, from all of the Lovecraft stories that I've read where there's some sort of a racial, component or or a hereditary component that can, that has a you know sort of an abrasive uh context now like this is a bit th- there's there's more to be discussed and a, and a greater appreciation that Howard's bringing to the table than at least Lovecraft and I don't know if there's other like surely there's all kinds of comparisons you can make to the other pulp writers but that's the the most direct comparison I know I believe that's true and he clearly is racist and he believes in racist things, but he can't understand why he does. I guess that's the part I keep coming back to is I almost read these stories and I see Howard struggling against his own racist teachings, the things that he's heard in the South. Like he, he's processing them and he's processing them by writing books like this one that we hold in our hands. And I'm going to channel, I'm going to do my best to, uh, to channel Mark Finn here. Um, you know, Lovecraft was a privileged New Englander who was born to wealth, right? And for a good portion of his life, at least some part of his life, didn't have to want for very much. And yeah, he was fraught with personal tragedy and had a really hard life. And ended up dirt poor later. Exactly, yeah. Um, but I, I think it's easier for Lovecraft, who romanticized, you know, everything Anglo-Saxon, um, to be sort of more dismissive and more disgusted by differences, especially when your measuring stick is, um, you know, 19 or 1800s Great Britain and England in particular. Um, and that's the height of, uh, civilization. Whereas Howard was raised in a totally different place, right? And almost a totally different, I don't, I don't know if I want to say a totally different time, but definitely a different place than, a different uh, culture. Yeah, totally different culture than yeah. Providence, Rhode Island. And that totally flavors his perspective exactly. on civilization, right? Like it's the, the opposite opinion of, of that sort of ideal that, that, that society sort of works around. And in a lot of, uh, Howard's other writings, like letters to, to people and things like that, he's, he says that, you know, he, uh, he reckons that, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, this is, Something that I read recently in uh, a book called The Last Celt by Glenn Lord. And um, within this book, there's a lot of – it's sort of a bio- biography. But 
Howard sort of through his letters tells you about himself and his views on history and this and that. And he says, you know, something like, I reckon that, um, the, the only civilization that I think should ever be wiped out is one that just without reason, without thought wipes out other civilizations and they, they should be killed to a man because there is no stopping that and there's no sense to it. And so, I can't ever imagine Lovecraft writing something like that. Do you know what I mean? Like that seems like something that comes from a man who is, is struggling with these, you know, here's 1930s, 1920s, 1930s, Texas. Here's where I live. Here's the things that I see, but here's how I feel. And I don't know how to bring it all together. Yeah. 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 I, I, I think I kind of get what you're, what you're saying there. I feel like I derailed our story. <laughs> no, that's fine. The Chromecast needs a, a good rambly sort of uh, diatribe every now and then, right? <laughs> or, or every single episode. Yep. Regardless. <laughs> uh, chapter four, the silent city. So, uh, Nalanga is now with Kane in Kron's body and, uh, they're going to go find these vampires, this lost silent city in the hills of the dead. And they're going to live in a, or they had a stone city, but now they all hide in caves. Exactly. And they hide in caves alone from each other because they'll eat each other. Right. That's yeah. sort of the, the sense that I get from Nalonga's speech, which I, I think is pretty difficult to get information from. Um, and so, yeah, I wish, I wish that that was different, but they leave the rod behind. We know that the rod is, is like our, uh, uh, our nuclear weapon, right? If, if you puncture one of these things with it, then it'll die. But they have to leave it there to protect, uh, Zuna. And Kron. Zuna. Or, yeah, because just she Zuna. Is, she's asleep. She's in the dreamscape with her with boyfriend Kron. Kron's spirit. Yeah, that's right. Um, and so Solomon Kane says, well, why don't you just send your ghost out to kill all the vampires? And <laughs> I wanted to say, well, duh, that's too easy. That's like, what kind of story is that? And then, and then Nalonga's spirit killed all the vampires and they went to the village and had dinner. The end. (laughs) Um, no, he has to be in somebody's body. There has to be a body, a vessel for him. And so they go out to this high bluff in the hills. The sun's beaten down. It's just as hot. It sounds like the worst summer day in Texas that you've ever could ever experience that that's the, the seed of, of this description of how hot it is, I think. But they're, they're kind of wandering around in these hills and Nalanga keeps saying, he keeps kind of giving the backstory. This is some, some classic Howardian exposition. I feel that these vampires, they're, they're age old. Nobody knows where they, whence they came, but they hide in the hills. They don't hide in the city anymore. They hide from each other. They hide from the vultures and they're not going to come out in the daytime. So we're okay right now, but it seems that the sun keeps getting closer and closer to the horizon as they wander around. It certainly does. And so we see all of these caves that no longer tells us, Hey, they live in these caves. They live alone. They don't live in the city anymore, probably because they'll just eat each other if they do. So they've, uh, through the, through the process of natural selection, they've driven one another out of the city into the caves and they live solitary lives until nighttime. It's very quiet. There's, there's nothing to tell them that the vampires are coming and Nalonga begins. He tells Kane, Hey, be quiet. I'm going to do something. I'm going to work some mighty magic. You don't know how strong I am. 
doing his showmanship thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. And Kane starts sitting there thinking like, man, it would be really easy for some vampires to show up and wreck our day right now. And then what happens? And sure enough, <laughs> here comes a whole mess of them. All of them. It sounds as though, uh, I love this little paragraph here. At the very edge of the cliff, the vampire wavered then pitched back over to fall for a hundred feet and lie writhing on the rocks of the plateau below. Nalonga was on his feet pointing. The hills were giving up their dead. <laughs> um, Kane describes it as though it were an unholy judgment day. The dead are rising, uh, but not to be judged, right? Only to feed on some souls and some blood. This isn't revelations. This is, this is a hellscape. This is real life. <laughs> One thing that I noticed here with Nalonga, like his, his juju that he's working, mm -hmm. he's carving like runes into the, into the clay. And so I kind of thought of Beyond oh, the Black River. That's right, right. I where, missed that. Where yeah. Conan is doing sort of rune magic. Yeah. I saw the, the ancient language. Yeah. yeah. The, uh, the children of Jebel Sog. Oh yeah. 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 Good on you, man. You remembered that. <laughs> 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 yeah. Like that's, it's the same kind of, kind of thing. You were right. Here. Yes. Uh, I don't know. That's cool. Um, and so, yeah, he's carving this, this, uh, rune, this thing into the cliff. Um, but the dead are coming and they're coming closer and closer and closer. They don't speak. They don't yell. They don't hiss. They don't do anything. So it sounds like some of them are fast. It sounds like some of them are slow and mummified. Right. So the more they surged up like a black wave, he swung his musket in a silent fury that matched theirs. The black wave broke and wavered back and came on again. He could not kill them. Those yeah. words beat on his brain like a sledge on an anvil as he shattered wood-like flesh and dead bone with his smashing swings. He's beaten them to death with his musket. He knocked them down, hurled them back, but they rose and came on again. This could not last. What in God's name was no longer doing? And Cain is, he's trying to Hold them off, right? He's he's the Spartans at Thermopylae here, and there's just one of them, and it's Cain. Uh, yeah, they're they're surrounding Cain. They're on all sides. They're like this is like Romero style zombie horror right here. Um, and the vampires rip at Cain's flesh, and they're biting him, and they're they're I you know they're gonna win. In fact, Cain has given up because this is the yeah. end. His faith is gone. Not only the Gianni is, illustration is very poignant for this. The, the picture that you see that he is the ink drawing that he has. Uh, yeah, the odds do not look in Kane's favor. <laughs> yeah. This, this picture actually reminds me of an illustration in the first dark tower book in the gunslinger where they're in the, uh, caves and the slow mutants are coming. Oh yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. 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 We'll, we'll have to find that and post it, uh, side by side with this because it, it reminds me quite a bit of, of this. It's pretty cool. And it's a similar sort of moment. Catholic school. Hmm. It reminded me of Catholic school. This reminded it's you of Catholic school like this in our textbooks. <laughs> <laughs> this was biology class. Yeah. The vampires <laughs> will bite at your flesh. <laughs> so Kane says, this is the end. This is it for me. And then he looks up and, and because he hears Nalonga scream, this soul piercing scream, looks up, uh, Nalonga's arms are up, they're out, and there are black wings, these forms all around him. And it says, Cain laughed almost insanely. The vultures are coming. 
It's a vulture Defy attack. Defy man and God, but you may not deceive the vultures, sons of Satan. They know whether a man be alive or dead. That's true. We've got some classic biological control going on here, right, Josh? <laughs> That's right. They've released a biological control agent in the vultures, and they are going to take out the uh, invasive species that is the vampires. So they start sweeping down big black jets of them, basically chase these vampires back into the stone city. Right, Luke? That That is right. And we, we get kind of a, a clean wrap up here uh, with, with this, this entire army of vultures putting it into the vampires, but they, yeah. they are banished and, and, and ruined. Yeah. It's pretty fast. And then once, once the vultures have done their work, Nalonga lights a, uh, a bundle of dried grass throws it down off the precipice, off the hill that they're standing on. And sounds to me from the descriptions in the story that he's able to maybe control the fire and direct it somewhat. But regardless, yeah, sort of, sort of to me, it sounds that way, but maybe I'm just putting more into it than, than what is really there. Um, I, I definitely agree. I think that there is some level of control. Um, but these flames are, le- it says leaps a hundred feet in the air. This is a huge fire. So apparently this is not the right time to do control burns in Africa. And these vampires get burnt. And the last one that gets burnt screams the, the scream of a dying race or a vanishing race. Sorry. Is how Howard describes it. That is really cool. Yeah. I love that part, I guess. Cause I don't know. We keep trying to find these ties between Conan and Kane sort of. And I feel like. Maybe this is one that Conan maybe interacted with these vampires at some point. There's well, vampires in Conan stories, right? That's right. Uh, in the Hour of the Dragon, yet again, there's a, a vampire queen, Akivasha. Um, right. And it's interesting because, uh, if I remember correctly, she had white skin, but she was in the Stygian tomb, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so clearly different, not just in terms of her ethnicity, but also in terms of of the way she is. She's more of a classical vampire, like more of a Bram Stoker uh, type figure. She's seductive. She's beautiful. She's captivating. She's powerful. And she wants Conan to be her consort. But in this story, we've got vampires that are more like the vampires in, um, I don't know, 30 days of night, maybe, or uh, uh, last man on earth. That type of thing. Yeah, yeah. But I guess the even though the vampires die, the end of the story is no longer releasing Kron. Yep, that's pretty much what happens at the end. They go back to the cave. Nalonga says, you know, I, I'm so old. I know so much more than you. You wouldn't understand the stuff and how I do it, even if I told you. You know, sort of going along with the, the discussions we've already had of Cain not, still not really believing or or at least reluctant to put faith in this type of magic. Uh, Nalonga says, you know, you call a lot of things evil. You would even call me evil. You've referred to me, I'm paraphrasing here, but you've referred to me as Satan or an evil figure. And if I were evil, why would I give back this awesome body? I've possessed the body of, of like a 17 or 18 year old man who's powerful and young why wouldn't I just keep this body and never go back to mine if I were evil, but I'm not evil. So I'm going to go I back could live forever. Yeah, I could live forever, but I won't because that's not what you do. Um, and I love that part because it, it very finely illustrates a couple of things. I think one that no longer is not evil. He, he uses this magic that is sort of 
I guess best described as being gray. There's good you can do with it, as he just demonstrated. And there's bad you could do if you controlled a uh, an army of vultures, I guess, and could control the flames of a fire. You could be one of these megalomaniacal wizards from a Conan story. But no longer Thothamon. doesn't. Yeah, yeah, you could be Thothamon, but no longer doesn't do that because he's a good guy. Um, and so he tells Kane, keep the voodoo staff. You need it. I'm going to go back. And Kane says, my, my call continues. I have to keep going. And I like the little joke at the end too. Like Kron wakes up and, and so, <laughs> and so does Zana and they rub their eyes and Kron sounds really kind of sad and apologetic. He says, uh, we must have, we must have slept. We must have slumbered the whole time. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> And then it just, it's like a Scooby-Doo ending and, and everyone yeah. stands around laughing <laughs> and then the credits roll. <laughs> All right. I, I was, I was into the ending, not just because of the funny part, but also because Nalonga does kind of confront Kane and say, Hey, uh, listen, you need to reconcile this inside of yourself. We fought together twice now and you still think of me as, as the great evil. You think of me as this demon incarnate. You need to figure out that. You're a player on a board you don't understand. Yeah. And I guess the question that came to mind to me is, how do you reconcile it if you have faith in a certain religion, if you have faith in a certain doctrine, and then you see evidence, irrefutable evidence, time after time, repeated evidence that um, what you believe in is wrong. How do you reconcile it? What do you, like, what do you do? This is your entire worldview crashing down around you. And I think that's what Kane's going through. I guess I didn't see it as I viewed it differently. I viewed it as Kane needs to realize he's not wrong. He's not alone. There are other forces at work that he doesn't understand. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Not- yeah. There's, there's more paths up the mountain than just the, the current trail that, that Kane's walking. Like, there's this, you know, not... Old magic is just as just as useful as sort of Kane's more contemporary uh, spiritual views. And again, that's a weirdly progressive thing in this, right? This idea that there's multiple paths to salvation. Yeah. And I think as we continue along the uh, the final legs of the road of vengeance, we'll see even more of this play out and, and hopefully we'll get some resolution to, to Cain's spiritual journey. I hope he converts to Jujuism. <laughs> Is that what you're calling it? Jujuism? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I think we've discussed this one to death, but do you guys have any final thoughts? Uh, I did, I did do some research on African vampires. I don't okay. know if, if either of you looked into that. No, let's the, hear the it. The two that I thought were most notable I thought this vampire was very kind of traditional Slavic, Eastern European kind of vampire. In Africa, though, they did have a couple of kinds that they believed in that I thought were cool. There were about five or six listed on Wikipedia, uh, according to Luke, the source of all knowledge. And the two that I thought were interesting, the one is called the Adzi, and it's part of you folklore, which are the people who live in Togo and Ghana, which might be part of sort of where we're at in Africa on the West Coast of Africa. Uh, and they take the form of fireflies instead of bats w- when it's nighttime. 
They come into your house and they drink your blood, blood as you sleep. There's no defense against them. You can't use garlic or holy water or anything like that. And they can even possess humans. So I thought that was kind of interesting. Uh, we also have the Imbundulu, which is translated roughly as the lightning bird, which is a black and white bird that summons thunder and lightning with its wings and talons, sort of like a vulture might. Uh, it's familiar. Uh, it's a familiar for witches and witch doctors. They have an insatiable appetite for blood, and sometimes they become men that are very beautiful, and they seduce women. That's cool, man. So were there any, did you see any evidence of vampires that were more like uh, just dead corpses, just monsters? I, I didn't necessarily. Uh, theirs were all, I would say they were a little more interesting than our traditional vampires. They all had, they had a connection to this traditional West African religion, the juju that we've mentioned mm -hmm. and some of the others. There was one that was supposed to be native to Madagascar that ate fingernails and blood of royal people. <laughs> they just they were they were very different than what we consider vampires, I guess, from our white just total European worldview. Very cool, man. And there you know, the there are so many different vampire myths and legends from around the world and they're all so weird. What was the South American one that uh Hellboy fought that time that was just a head flying around? Is that the, the like, uh, pen... Penangolan. Penangolan. Yeah. Yeah, that's what it was. It, was it South American? I or, like, it, Southeast Asia? I can't remember. I thought it was... It's, I thought it was South American. It's but, weird. I, <laughs> yeah, it's super weird. I mean, there there were heads in the... There there, there have been flying heads in Hellboy a yeah, couple of there times. Yeah, there were heads and heads. That one yeah. that, that's like the, the Japanese sort of folktale yeah. where there's the, the disembodied heads chasing and rah, 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 <laughs> wanting to get him. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, yeah, vampire myths, cool beans. So next time, Luke, what's our next stop on the road of vengeance? Vings in the night. Vings in the night. There's, I think that's one of the longer stories. Um, and we're, we're really closing in on the, uh, the next junction in our uh, journey down Robert E. Howard's bibliography. Who can say what road we'll walk? Who knows? Only Crom. And he doesn't care. Until then, where can the fine people find us, Josh? They can find us on the web at http colon forward slash forward slash thecromcast.blogspot.com. You can listen to us on iTunes. Uh, you could also listen to us on Stitcher if you prefer to stream your audio content straight into your ear holes. You can contact us on Twitter. We're at the Chromecast and we are on Facebook, facebook.com slash the Chromecast. And I believe that we still have a telephone number that uh, we would love for you to use. If you're uh, in the mood to call us and ask us questions, say something about the show, say something about the stories, that's 859-429-CROM. And if you can't call, you don't want to call, record something on your computer. Use your microphone, record an MP3, send it our way. We'll play it on the show, same as we would as if you called. And if you're interested in uh, helping out the show, if you have a few minutes, just give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, if you prefer. Thanks for tuning in this week. We hope you had a lot of fun learning about vampires. And join us next episode when we talk about wings flying in the night. The wild dogs cry out in the night As they grow restless, longing for some solitary company 
I know that I must do what's right. Sure as Kilimanjaro rises like Olympus above the Serengeti. I seek to cure what's deep inside, frightened of this thing that I've become.